Welcome and thank you for joining Save Our Sisters Unplugged. If you're looking for a sisterhood of intelligent women to network with, then this is a podcast for you. We'll be letting our hair down and spilling all the tea on an array of topics and gain insight into what women really think. My name is Noreen Foy and I'll be your host. Now let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Save Our Sisters Unplugged podcast. As part of our fatherhood series, we will be hearing about what men really think. Today's special guest is an entrepreneur, social equality advocate, and founder of the not-for-profit organization, Rest Global. He has a passion for helping others in our community and has worked with organizations such as the Elite Youth Outreach Program, the Black Chamber of Commerce, and Choices Youth Outreach Program. He is also a motivational speaker and has spoken to audiences of thousands alongside great motivational speakers such as Michael Sanders and Carl Cannon, to name a few. And finally, he is currently working on his book called Black Boy, You Can. It is my honor to introduce Mr. Aaron Adams. Welcome to the Queen's Domain. Well, thank you. Thank you for allowing me into the Queen's Domain. Hey, you know, this is a private thing. It's like VIP only. (laughs) Kind of like the Red Room. (laughs) Well, the Red Room, whatever you want to call it. No, no. In the Bible, you know how uh, all the women used to go into the Red Tent and have their conversations and it was sacred. Uh, So maybe not the Red Room, the Red Tent. There we go. Yeah. And you know what? We need to bring some of that back, but that's exactly what Save Our Sisters is trying to do. We're trying to really have women come together and have conversations because I think a lot of that gets lost. And so I want to say, I am happy to have you here with us today so that we can have our discussion on fatherhood. What made you reach out? Um, I noticed uh, you had a friend of mine on and uh, if it's okay, I'll say Robbie, Robbie Chris. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robbie's a really great guy. And so when I listened a little bit and I saw what the program was about, I said, hmm, I would like to speak on this. Um, I saw Saving Our Sisters, and that really intrigued me because I thought that that is a very important issue. Um, saving our women is foundational. And I think the women are the backbone to our world. So I think it's important that uh, that we reach out and we do what we can uh, as men, as fathers, as friends, as brothers, um, to make sure that we do save our women. Uh, in today's society, we know it's not many things or many people who consider our women. Uh, and I think we should. So that's what drew me to reach out today. Well, I'm glad you did. For the month of June, I wanted to hear what the men thought. We did two episodes with Robbie Chris. So you are the second guy on the podcast. And of course I have men in my life. Um, mm-hmm. And your stories are just as bad as ours. Let's just say it. We, as mothers, we have our stories of what we go through with the father and the co-parenting and trying to keep your families together. But I know as fathers, you guys go through a lot too. So let's go ahead and take it back to the beginning. What was your family dynamic like growing up? Oh, I have an older brother. I have several step siblings uh, from my mother remarrying. But my mother raised two boys by herself, basically. Of course, you had a grandmother, uh, which many, many households have the matriarch. But as for my father and my mother being married, they were not 
um, and she had my brother from a previous relationship. So it was really a single parent uh, doing her best to raise two boys. And kind of nowadays, it's like that. It's rare in our community that you see two-parent household where both mother and father, when you do see it, I mean, it's a beautiful thing, make no mistake about it. Uh, but it seems to be getting worse where, you know, these young babies are having babies and the fathers are not around, either they're in jail or they're just uh, not focused on raising the child correctly. So it's a lot of dysfunction and, and toxic relationships. Right. But my situation, my mother, she worked hard. I can say that she was determined and she used her fuel and her pain uh, to produce more fuel and grow out of the circumstance that we were in because we started off in the Warner Home Projects. Actually, they moved from 39th and Cottage Grove in Chicago, which was somewhat of a rough neighborhood where the Blackstones, you know, the Blackstone gang, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but there was a gang called the Blackstones who frequented that area. Uh, she stayed right across the street from their hangout. It was called the Fort. And she said to me, Aaron, she said, I looked up outside and I saw the fort and I thought I did not want you and Tutu, is what she calls my older brother's name's Tyar, but she calls him Tutu. <laughs> she said, I do not want you and Tutu um, to get caught up in this and die in these streets. So uh, she came to visit a family member in Peoria in 1979 and got stuck in Peoria because it was a blizzard. Oh, wow. Uh, so she couldn't get back. Yeah, that's how it happened. <laughs> Uh, and we started in the Warner Homes. Uh, uh, yep. The Warner Homes, 444 uh, Southwest New Street. Yep. And uh, she worked her way out. She said, this won't be the end, though. So she worked her way from there uh, to a smaller sub-housing, which was the Pearson Hills. Uh, and she continued to work her way out until she got us uh, out to Dunlap, which okay. is predominantly a Caucasian. And uh, we were some of the first Blacks out there. And, uh, you know, she did what she had to do to make sure her boys were safe, you know? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we women, we will do what we have to do to make sure our babies are safe. So it might have been some divine intervention when that blizzard came through. Maybe you guys were supposed to be in this place. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Have you guys ever, like, traveled back and forth between here and Chicago over the years? Or once you left, she was like, nope, you know what? We're here. We're going to start fresh. Yeah, we went back uh, just to pack up the rest of her things. Um, and she came back and she said, you know, this is where we're at. We're here. We did move to Springfield for a brief period of time, I think, because her job uh, led her to have to go work in Springfield. But then we ended up back here. Um, so this is where we stationed at. Okay. So your father, was he in the picture at all? My father was in the picture early on. Um uh, as my mother told me, she said, Aaron, the reason why I didn't put your father on child support <laughs> is because he was a good dad. When he was being a father, he was a good dad. And uh, he was active in your life. Uh, but at some point in time, and I'm not sure when, he chose to use drugs. And when he decided to use drugs, he kind of uh, just fell off. Like he fell off the map, not kind of. He did actually just fall off the map. And it kind of hurt our relationship even though at that time I didn't realize it because, you know, you think your parents are perfect. You think mom is, you know, I should call her superwoman. Mm -hmm. When I see that white woman come on the screen, I say, mom, there you go. And uh, you think your dad, you know, you think he's perfect. You think they have all the answers and you don't understand that they're learning to be parents just as you're learning to be their child. And so uh, when he chose the drugs, I'm not saying I made excuses for it, but I just overlooked it because that was my dad, right? you know, and, um, 
still loved him regardless, uh, but it really affected us, you know, to the point where my mom told him, hey, if you're not going to do what you need to do, then don't continue to hurt my son. Don't continue to act as if you're going to be there and not show up when you say you're going to pick him up. You know, all the things that, you know, fathers have done to jeopardize the relationship with their children. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she kind of distanced me from him and tried her best to prepare me to be a man in this world. But it was really challenging because she had no knowledge of being a man herself. She was a woman um, and she had a frayed relationship with her father because she didn't know who he was. Oh, um, okay. Her father, uh, actually, if I can go into it for a brief moment, uh, her mother, my grandmother, uh, was walking home in Chicago and a man, you know, approached her, grabbed her, pulled her to the side and raped her. Um, and so my mother was a product of being raped and my grandmother chose to keep her, you know, at that time with a sixth grade education, might I say, you know, she raised three children. My grandmother raised three children. Um, so my mother didn't have that bond with her father. She didn't know her father. So that was somewhat of a problem when it came to actually teaching me how to be a man when my father wasn't actually there to do it. So, uh, that's part of the problem nowadays. And I think that's why it's a wonderful thing that you are doing the fatherhood series because so many times young men and women don't have their fathers and don't understand the relationship between father and child or mother and father. So thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. You know, I appreciated you reaching out. And just like you said, it is very important to really have these candid discussions um, because your story can help somebody else. I wanna ask though, um, if I may, about your mother's situation. Has she ever asked your grandmother anything about him? Or, I mean, I know it was not an ideal situation, but sometimes the person that attacks is somebody that they know. Was it just a random stranger? Well, I mean, he was a random stranger. My grandmother did not know who he was. Um, to my knowledge, uh, she actually found out who it was. Uh, the service, 23 and Me or whatever, you know, they have the oh, uh-huh. fraternity. So my mother entered hers and someone from his side of the family saw that they had the same DNA and they reached out and said, Hey, we're cousins. And so my mother was like, well, who are you and how? And so she found out what his name was for many years. She never knew what his name was, never knew anything about him. Um, but she ended up finding out who he was and finding out information about him, uh, years after my grandmother had passed. Uh, so it was a really touchy subject for, for both of them. Um, for my grandmother having to relive that, I'm pretty sure, that thought and the emotions and feelings tied up into that situation. And then also uh, my mother just not knowing, you know, growing her right. her whole life and just not knowing that other part for herself. Um, I'm pretty sure it was frustrating and I could see it. But as I said, she used that as fuel. Um, my mm-hmm. mother's one of the most determined, uh, disciplined, um, I mean, most beautiful creatures God has ever created, you know, when it comes down to actually being a human being. So um, I commend her and I love her to death and appreciate her. Yeah. Wow. She's been through a lot. She's definitely a rock. I salute her. I hate that those things have happened to your mother and your grandmother. Um, But, you know, they sound like they were amazing women and they had you and your brother to raise Tutu. (laughs) Where where does that name come from? Can I ask? Um, yeah. So my mother went through, uh, I guess a phase, I'm going to call it a phase, but it may have been something else, but she went through the phase of, uh, African names. So my brother's name is Tayari Bomani. So, uh, it's, it's challenging for most people to say Tayari. 
And so we just call them Tutu uh, for short. So it makes it easy for everyone else. <laughs> Plus Tutu Desmond, you know. Right. Of course. Of course. He has big shoes to fill with that Tutu. <laughs> shoes. Big shoes. So in this phase of your life, do you have any type of uh, communication with your father at all? I do. I do. Um, I have, I've come to a place where I have not agreed with what he's done, but I've accepted it because each person is who they are. Um, he's apologized a million times. Um, and he's no longer using drugs. You know, he's clean and sober now. Uh, but like I said, with both my parents thinking that they were perfect and that we could do no wrong. Um, as a child growing up, I made several bad decisions and, you know, thinking about the things that I had done, I knew at some point in time, you know, I wanted to be forgiven for the things I had done. And so in order for me to be forgiven, I had to forgive those who I felt harmed me or hurt me or made me feel some sort of way that was other than love. And it started with both my parents. And so I said, everyone makes mistakes. No one's perfect. So Aaron, you have to forgive these individuals and no matter what you have to forgive them. And so that's how it started for me. I realized and recognized that they're not perfect, that people make mistakes and they are my parents and I forgave them. And that allowed me to accept forgiveness for myself, you know, from the things I felt like I had done wrong in life. And uh, now my father and I, we talk almost daily. I mean, he likes to talk, he's winded. So he calls, <laughs> he calls me baby. Yes, it is. He calls me baby and says, hey, baby, and I'm 43, dad. I'm, I'm a grown man now. <laughs> and it's still, I'm his baby, you know? So, hey, baby, what you doing? Are you at work today? Oh, I just wanted to call and see how you're doing. I'm like, yes, dad, I'm at work. And they say, okay, well, you know, I was thinking it. I was reading something in the Bible. And I want you just to tell me what you think about this. And I'm like, okay, dad, but I'm at work right now. He says, yeah, you know, and uh, they'll just keep me. Like, that's yeah, that's like my going. mom. That's my mom. Anytime I'm going to call her, I already know I have to slate some extra time in because one, I'm going to have to talk loud. So I have to make sure I'm in a secluded location and two, get some yeah. extra time. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. Yes. But yeah, we have a great relationship. It was a little bit frayed um, because I was still kind of frustrated with certain things. Mm -hmm. And I'm a person who believes that if you want to make a change, then you have to actively bring forth action. You have to continuously do some things um to bring about the change and if you're not doing those things i don't really want to hear about you saying you're going to change or you're making change because you're not actively doing it and so that would be some of the things and you know i would be frustrated because i want him to do more and i pray for him to do more and as he's gotten older it's a lot harder for him to do certain things but now uh he sees the benefit i want him to do water aerobics is what i'm referring to i oh was like that you need to get into <laughs> you need to get into water aerobics because you have to be healthy i want you healthy yeah. You know, I want you healthy. And so he's, well, my body hurts and my knees hurt. And I'm like, you have to work through that pain so you can grow stronger. Now he's doing it. He's excited about it. He loves it. Does it twice a week. And so, you know, I'm happy for him, but. That's good. And water aerobics is really good for that. That's a form of therapy, water therapy. So you're on the right track with that. Well, I'm glad you and your dad really came together though, with your relationship being repaired. Did that change your mindset about fatherhood? Um, no, because previously, prior to our relationship being repaired, I already had a mindset of what I thought fatherhood should be okay. uh, because our relationship was so frayed. I knew what I thought a father should be, how a father should react, how a father should respond, what he should be doing, uh, when he interacted with his child. 
And I'll give you an example. Um, in my relationship, my girl, she has two children. And so her son looks at me as his father. He doesn't look at his biological father as his father. He looks at me as his father. And so one day was my father riding with uh, myself and uh, my son and my son's best friend. We allowed his best friend to come live with us because he had a family situation where he just needed a home and he wanted to finish high school and go to college. So I told him, come on, you can come live with us and make sure you're safe. And so I was talking to them and my father said something while I was talking to them and I paused for a minute and I said, well, dad, I'm doing what you didn't do. I'm explaining to them why this is the way it is. You know, the consequences of these things, I'm preparing them to be young black men because the hardest thing in the world I feel to be is a young black man. No one's concerned with your feelings. No one's concerned with your emotions. No one's concerned with your spiritual health. They just expect you to deal with whatever is out there uh, without actually caring or being concerned. And so when I said that to him, I think I hurt his feelings, which I wasn't trying to do. I just wanted him to understand I'm trying to be the father that you weren't for me to them. And uh, I think probably like a week later, he called me, said, I understand what you were saying and, and you're doing a great job. You're doing what I didn't do and what I should have done. He said, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know I should have been doing those things. And that kind of frustrated me because I'm like, how do you not know? If you're a father, how do you not know to protect your child? How do you not know to prepare your child to become a young black man? How do you not know these things? You know what you went through uh, as you grew up in the 70s and the 60s. You know what you experienced. So how do you not know how to prepare your child for that? Which uh, we discussed later on. And he said, I just never really thought about those things. And, you know, you think about things in a different way. You know, the way you perceive things is such in a different light that, you know, not many people think like that. And I don't know. I thought everyone did, honestly, uh, but some people don't. So, you know, it's important for those of us that do to help prepare yeah. each one and everyone that we come into contact with. Because if I allow my son to be disrespectful to a young black lady, you know, that he's trying to date, then what does that do? That destroys her self-esteem. It sets her up to allow more of that negative energy into her life. Exactly. And then when she has kids, she'll perpetuate that on her children. He'll continue to perpetuate that same behavior. So no, I'm nipping that in the bud now. Just because you see the stuff you see on TV, son, don't get caught up in that. That's not what exactly. we're about. You are doing the right thing. You know, and your father, he's from a different time. He is yes. from a different time. They learned a whole different lesson. My parents are in their 80s and uh, they do things differently. I asked my dad one time and it was just simple things. Like my sister passed almost six years ago. And I kept her glasses. And I told my dad, I have her glasses. He said, you have her glasses? He's like, but don't wear them. And I'm like, well, why? You know, <laughs> there was one time that I, I didn't have my readers nearby and I just grabbed hers, and, you know, put them on. And he said, you don't wear things that dead people have worn. And I was like, but why? Because, you know, we're from a questioning generation. You know, they, Absolutely. they, just, they just obey blindly. But we question stuff. So I'm trying to get to the root cause of, okay, what, what is this going to do? And he said, I don't know. That's just what I've been told. And it just always stayed with me. And I'm like, but daddy makes no sense. <laughs> you know, but that just speaks to that time and how they actually gave information down to their children. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. 
So your parents, the way they parent, it's probably just things that they've learned that they never questioned and they just added to the program, you know? But with us, we question stuff because our world is different. So I want to go into something uh, a little bit different. As you were saying in the beginning, um, the nuclear family is not really the status anymore. Step families are now becoming the new normal these days. Do you agree to a certain point that maybe folks don't want to get married anymore and keep that father-mother unit together? I think that um, a lot of people that I've talked to are fearful of marriage. Um, it's a beautiful idea. The idea of marriage is beautiful. You want to find someone you can share this monumentous moment with and uh, enjoy the rest of your life. But our culture and society has made it a norm to be just kind of, you know, I don't want to say out there, but kind of separated from that unified bond mm -hmm. that uh, uh, marriage provides. And so you find a lot of mixed families, uh, which is very challenging. You know, man coming into a relationship with kids or a woman coming into a relationship with kids. Right. And, you know, with all of the different things that you come into the relationship with, I don't like to call it baggage, uh, but some people call it baggage. I just like to say it's things that you come into the relationship with, um, which can also be blessings. So you don't have to look at it in a condescending way. Uh, but when you come into it, a lot of the people that I have seen didn't do the counseling first, didn't figure out what the other person wanted, um, how the children feel, you know, the importance of bringing the children into the fold. Uh, when you unite a family, I mean, it's hard enough to just unite one person with one person, you know, right. you bring a mixed family that's more challenging. So I think it's a fear of if you find someone you want to be with and that person has, you know, six other people on the backup, you know, now they got the prenup. So it's basically saying, if this don't work, <laughs> which I'm not thinking it will, you won't be able to take no money from me. Right. You know, so when you plan to fail, you are preparing to fail. So if it's prepared to be that way, then you can almost believe that it's not going to last. You know, it, it takes compromise. It takes uh, uh, other things beyond just compromise. It takes love, of course. Uh, it takes commitment. You know, it takes patience, takes understanding. So there's multiple things that society has not allowed us to have anymore because it's an on-demand society. Right now, if I text you, you better text me right back. I mean, within mm -hmm. seconds, I want to see my text being responded to back in the day. And I hate to say that like I'm old, but back in the day, <laughs> you know, mail, if I sent you a letter, you might not get it until four days later and you might not respond to it until, you know, the week after next. So I wouldn't know what your response was going right. to be to my message. So with society being so demanding and everything immediate, it changes the spectrum. Uh, people want immediate answers. They don't give you a chance to think about what you want or what your response would be. And if it's not a response that they like, they're upset with you. Instead of understanding why you responded that way, they'll get upset because it's not the response they wanted. You know, so everyone already has this preconceived notion about what it should be, how it should be, and when it should be instead of learning about how it should be and what it should be and when it should be. And uh, I think that's what destroys a lot of these relationships because, you know, we don't know that the partner, we think we know, we like something about them um, and get caught up in what we like. And then when we find something we don't like, we immediately start looking for it somewhere else. Yeah. And uh, it ends up hurting because now you're looking for that void to be filled over here when you've committed yourself over here and uh, 
you know, it just destroys whatever it is you're attempting to build. And I find another thing too, that is something that our parents were better at staying together. Yes. You're thick or thin. When they go into this marriage, they're like, hey, we in it till somebody die. But now, like you said, everybody's like, they don't, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Just how they took prayer out of school, they take God out of the covenant and they don't really value marriage and value the nuclear families like it should be anymore. Because like you said, oh, well, if you're not giving it to me, I'm going to get it from someone else and I'm willing to just let you go. Nobody's willing to fight. In the conversation that Robbie and I just had, where women block the men from having this relationship with their children, men get this stigma around them that Black fathers cannot be supportive husbands and father their children and stick around and lead that family unit anymore. What do you think about that? I think that it does happen. I'm not saying it does not happen. It does happen too often. I think that's usually your choice pick on the young lady that you decide to have a child with. Um, Because I'm not trying to say women aren't good, but when you have a good woman that has had your child, she's not trying to keep your child from you. She's trying to encourage you to be a father because she wants her son or her daughter to have that relationship. So her daughter understands how a man is supposed to treat a woman and she doesn't end up being a lost young girl out here chasing some little knucklehead around. Uh, But when you pick a young lady who didn't have a father in her life, who doesn't understand value and virtue of a woman, and she's scorned because whatever may have happened in your relationship, because it takes two. You got to know it always takes two. Um, Men aren't innocent, neither are the women. Now, should a woman use a child to hold over a man's head to get money or whatever she's trying to do? Absolutely not. That's wrong. It's completely wrong. Max. In the same token, you know, it doesn't start off like that. In all the relationships I know, it's usually he denies the child first and says, that ain't my baby. Let's get a blood test. And next thing you know, she's hurt because she's like, I know you ain't fit to do that. And it's been you and only you. And he's like, whatever, you know. So (laughs) it starts off with scarring her. You can only cut a person so many times before they say, ouch, I'm about to fight back. Yeah. So now you've hurt her. And she's figuring out, okay, well, how can I hurt him? He played like he loved his kids. Now he knows his child. Let me pull this baby from him. Let me do something that I can. So she's scorned. So what we need to do is we need to see what is the root cause of that situation and help or attack that root cause so she doesn't continue that same pattern behavior. Because if we don't address why she's doing it or what has caused her and triggered her to do it, then you can best believe She's going to continue it no matter what the father does, you know, and in the same token, if he's not addressing his issues or standing up being the man he's supposed to be, you know, you can't be a sometime and dad. You can't say, okay, today I want to be dad. And then three weeks down the road, say, oh, I want to be dad again, because there's nights when that child wakes up sick, crying in the middle of the night. And you're sitting there like, uh, well, thought that it was okay because you had it under control. You know, the woman bears a lot. God created you guys. My personal opinion is the most beautiful creatures because you're able to do so many things. You're multidimensional. Uh, you're very versatile and y'all can do all types of stuff. You know, me and it's one track line. We get on one thing, we get to go and we get to go on. Uh, we're stuck on that. But a woman is so versatile and diversified where she could be doing this over here, managing this over here, managing that over here. And you see that now. You see a lot more women getting 
uh, positions, CEO roles, because right. they know women can handle them. They can manage. I mean, you'll be pregnant, still go to work, still take care of the household, you know, still love your man the way you're supposed to all at the same time, make sure you got what you need. You know, when a man, it's like, you put a little bit of something on his back. He's like, oh Lord, I'm tired. Let me kick my feet. So, <laughs> we can you know, multitask. Guys, you, need, <laughs> you can multitask. We can multitask. I, I would agree, man. Absolutely. I, you guys need to focus on one thing at a time because you try to do too much <laughs> and then it's just not working out. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I do agree. It, it is wrong. It's completely wrong for a woman to use a child or hold a child away from, uh, away from the men. And it does happen. I mean, it happens far too many times. And my opinion is, like I said, I think we need to figure out why. What is the issue? Usually when you ask the woman what's going on and why, it's because she's scorned. She's hurt and she feels like he's playing sometimes dad and he doesn't want to be part of the child's life except when it's convenient for him. And y'all got feelings too. So when a woman, you know, is scorned and has those feelings, you have to address that. Um, I truly believe when a man is doing what he's supposed to do and if the household was unified as it should be, she wouldn't be able to use the child because you guys would be together, right. you know, but too many times we pick the wrong partners because we looking at, you know, the eyes or the thighs instead of looking at the brain, <laughs> you know, the eyes and the thighs, at, you know, instead of looking at what we should be and, uh, we get lost, we get lost in it. And next thing you know, baby's born and this child didn't ask to be born. You know, this child is right. helpless defenseless. And it's you two as parents job to protect and provide and to nurture and support and do the things needed. So, uh, we have to do that, you know, and a as a man, I mean, I look at it like this. Uh, if I don't do my job, I make it harder on you to do yours, you know, as a woman. So it's both of us working in this whole thing together. Absolutely. You know, God didn't make us just for us to do everything by ourselves. He made us to be a helpmate to you guys, but we both have our own roles, right? You have to make a foundation. You have to be a leader. You have to be my preacher, my, my provider, my protector, all of those things. You have to lead me, but you have to lead me in a way that I'm not uncomfortable being led. I'm comfortable and I trust where you're leading us and where you're leading our family. But the women also have to be prepared to be led. Absolutely. And sometimes as women, and I'll go ahead and raise my hand for this one too, because sometimes when you're a boss in your world for so long, and then here this guy come in, it takes you a minute to realize what position you should be playing, but you should know what position you should be playing. You should know when to submit. You should know when to lead. Just because it says a man is the head of the household don't mean that he leads all the time. Just like in a basketball game or in any type of game, you put in your best player depending on the situation. Absolutely. I, you know, I'm sure if you want to talk to your child about getting her period, you probably won't sign up and raise your hand for it. You'd be like, can you just uh -huh. go ahead and handle that? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Talk about girls. You'd be like, uh-huh, I'm your I guy. I got this. My man. I got this. Right. I got this. And you're okay. absolutely right. So we're supposed to really, really work together as a man, as a woman, as a unit. And even when we're not in the relationship, we still should be able to carry that over. And I know we can't control what the other person does, but there's one thing that you said in our conversation, you stated you don't have any biological children. And of course we know there are many men that walk away, but you make a statement 
by standing in the gap for this young lady, the first child that you fathered. She doesn't share your bloodline, but you're like, hey, she needs a man in her life. She needs that figure. Walk us through how you became her father figure. And how old is she now? Um, she is 16 going on 17. Yes, Aaliyah is 16 going on 17. Um, her mother and I dated for several years and uh, we had decided we were breaking up. And shortly after we broke up, her mother found out she was pregnant. And so she called me. You know, we remained cordial. We remained friends. So we still talked on the regular. She said, I need to tell you something. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And she said, I'm pregnant. And I said, oh, well, does the father know? And she said, no. I said, well, you need to tell him. You know, that's like one of the first things you need to do. You need to tell him. And so she told me who he was. And um, after explaining to me who he was, I kind of figured out how the situation would go based upon their situation. And so she ended up um, seeing me with my new girlfriend. And once she saw me with my new girlfriend, she began to tell everyone, no, Aaron doesn't want to do for me and this baby. Kind of like, you know, what we've been discussing. Oh, wow. so, so she began to say those things. Um, she called my mother and told her all these different things. And so my mother's like, Aaron, are you serious? This is your first child. Or I'm like, mom, would you know if that was my child? I'm doing backflips, you know, over the moon. Right. You know, so um, she ended up having the child and we went to the hospital. What my mother did first, my mother went to the hospital and I went afterwards. Long story short, you know, the baby wasn't mine, but I felt because I was all that she would have known uh, because when we did the paternity, she had already, uh, we, she had already, you know, become accustomed to me and kind of got to know me a little bit. I would go pick her up, you know, take her shop and do things like that. Already had prepared to do the father role. Because I knew that it wasn't my child, but in the same token, if you're teaching this child that I am the father, I don't want her to have a, a misconception of, uh, of what a man is or who her father supposedly is. Uh -huh. I wanted her to, you know, have a good vision of who her father was and how he played a role in her life. And so, uh, through the years, you know, I just continued to be there and it wasn't until a couple of years ago that she probably found out that I wasn't her father. Mm. Um, but. It's still, you know, as though she still believes me to be when she needs to talk about certain issues, you know, whatever it is, whether it's boys, uh, there was a situation with a young man that she had, um, and she called me, she couldn't talk to her mom about it because she felt like her mom didn't understand. Her mom was just going to tell her, no, you know, whatever. <laughs> and so we sat and we talked and, um, I said, well, do you really like this boy? And she said, yes. I said, well, y'all haven't had sex or nothing yet, right? She said, no, we haven't had sex. I said, okay, now we keep going. Clear. Right. Well, well, <laughs> Let's get one line. We got uh, that out of the way. Right, right. Let's get that out of the way. So um, she was just struggling because she really liked the boy, but her mother didn't want her to like the boy. Mm. And so she felt torn between liking this boy and how her mother felt about it. And so I told her, I said, well, the young man kind of gets in trouble and he had got uh, arrested. Um, they, the police pulled her over. They saw her in her car. She has a nice car. They saw her, saw him, pulled her over, arrested him, towed her car. So her mother was heated about that. Um, and so I'm sure she told me, I feel like it's my fault that he got arrested because he was with me. So I said, I understand that, you know, but it's not your fault. I said, it was his fault because he's a knucklehead. That's why he got arrested, you know, and the police were able to identify him. Um, but she couldn't get past the fact that he was with her when he got arrested. 
So she kind of began to cry about it because she liked the boy. She really liked him. And so I asked her, I said, well, do you see yourself being with this boy? And she says, no, not really. I come to the conclusion that I'm going to have to let him go. And I said, well, why did you come to that conclusion? She said, because I'm thinking about my future. And you told me that I have time for boys later. Boys will, will be there. There will always be a boy. No matter what, every door you open, there's going to be a boy in behind that door. Right. So uh, she's going to be a doctor. She wants to be oh, a... wow. Um, what is the doctor? It's the IV, the IVR, is it? In, in, oh, in vitro. In vitro. She's, right. I, she's yeah, like IVF. Like, yes. In and vitro fertilization to, doctor. Absolutely. That's what she wants to go to school for. That's what she is actually trying to go to school for. Um, she graduated high school early uh, and she was going to college at the same time as she was going to uh, high school. So she got her senior year diploma and her uh, associate's degree the same day or wow. oh, it was somewhere around the same time. Right. So, I mean, smart, bright, beautiful young lady. Um, so, you know, I'd explain it to her, if he's making decisions like that, how long before you end up in a situation where it jeopardizes your future and what you're working towards, you work too hard to get to where you're at, to allow a situation that's temporary to, uh, to determine what your long-term success or happiness will end up being. And so she just kind of cried and a little more. And she said, well, I said, well, what do you want to do? She says, well, I want to help him get out of jail and then just cut it off with him. And I said, okay, well, you know, that's fine. If that's what you want to do, you don't owe him anything. But if you feel like that's what you need to do to clear the air, then you do that. She says, but my mom ain't going to understand. And, you know, I said, well, your mom's just trying to protect you. Your mom knows what she went through. She went through a lot with different men in her life. And right. she's seeing it from a woman's perspective. She's seeing it from her baby girl. You know, I'm looking at it from dad and just knowing that you're a smart young lady who knows what decisions to make. You're not out here just, you know, twerking and doing all the other stuff. You're focused, you're driven, you have passion, you have discipline. So I'm looking at it from a different standpoint of trusting you, you know, and I'm not saying she doesn't trust you. She's just more worried as in protecting your virtue. She doesn't want you to lose your virtue um, chasing some boy. And so I said, I want you to understand the value of your virtue. So I know you're not going to lose it, but I need you to understand the value of it. And she ended up making the right decision. You know, she's still going to school, doing what she has to do. Um, she's focused and driven and continuously pursuing what she needs to. Um, but I just felt like it was really important that I continue to be that positive male voice in her life so she would have it. Because a lot of times young ladies don't have it. And when they don't have it, it's so detrimental because they end up chasing you know, some boy that makes them feel good or some boy that they saw their mama like. It's a whole situation that ends up just, right. you know, revolving cycle of toxicity, um, domestic abuse, um, early teen pregnancy. You know, it's just, it ends up being a whole problem. Yeah. And young women don't have that fatherhood or that father figure in their life because they don't understand the interaction between male and female. If I can tell you a story, about uh, when I was younger, um, I was in fifth or sixth grade, maybe sixth grade. And there was this girl that I just wanted. Her name was Brooke, Brooke Haggerty. Cutest little girl I mean ever. And um, I just liked Brooke so much. And I think I tried to talk to Brooke. I don't remember exactly what I said to Brooke, but I, you know, I tried to talk to her. And she told me, she said, Aaron, mm -mm, my dad ain't gonna let me date you. Mm -mm, no matter how much I like you. My daddy is not going to let me date you. 
And so when she said it to me, it kind of shook me a little bit because back then I had light brown eyes. You know, you didn't have a lot of young guys with light brown <laughs> eyes, you know. Oh, you was a tough, so, huh? Yeah, I was something, I thought. <laughs> but she had, you know, killed my dreams of her and I being in a relationship. And, uh, <laughs> and it was really uh, because she had been taught the value and the virtue of a young woman. Um, and not to mess with a knucklehead, you know, and I was a knucklehead back then. I mean, I really was a knucklehead and not only did it teach her a lesson, it taught me one as well. You know, I was really, really grateful for Mr. Haggerty. Um, even though I wasn't at that time, well, I was mad. Right. right. As, as, as I grew older, that lesson, it stuck with me about the importance of a father in uh, his daughter's life, you know, importance of a father in everyone's life, because even though he wasn't my dad, he taught me a lesson, you know, the importance of, uh, of teaching your daughter and protecting her and making sure she understood her value and her virtue. Yes. So, yeah. Even though it didn't work out for you, like you had a takeaway. So that's always a good I thing. Did. Yeah, I did. And I always say fathers teach their daughters their worth, you know, Actually. your father is a daughter's first love. And so the way he treats her is what she's going to really carry on in her life. And my son, um, he has a little girl, she's seven years old, my little baby, my little Vivi. And mm -hmm. I always tell him, I said, listen, you be careful how you discipline her. You discipline her in a way that she can understand you because you don't want to groom her for harsh words because then that'll just be normal for her. And then you see some guy out there talking to her crazy and you're going to want to rip his head off. But at the same time, that's what you taught her. You normalize that behavior for her. She's going to think that's the standard and you have to let her know that is not the standard. You don't accept that. And you can tell women that have their fathers in their life, just like you said. Yeah, she can. And she made that decision based upon what you planted in her. You planted that seed really, really young. So she already knew, even before you had that conversation, just that whole experience, even though she was a little hurt over it, she probably knew this guy ain't going nowhere. I'm going down the right path. He's going down the left path. And I'm not going to do that. Just like old girl's dad, he was like, oh, he's not going to let me date you. She already knew you were not going to prove. Right. Right. So she made the decision. So what I want to know is, of course, being a father is always tricky. But a stepdad, it's a little different because it's not your bloodline, but what boundaries were set for you? Like, was there any that said, hey, you can't say or do this because she's really not your biological child? Or were you having like just the range to really just parent her? Um, I think boundaries are always set when a woman comes into a relationship with a man who is not the father of their children because their first goal is to protect their child and they don't want their child hurt. Um, and sometimes it'll be, well, that's not your child. So, you know, you can't say certain things or you can't do certain things. I'm not one for, uh, whoopings, spankings. I look for other ways to discipline. I think that, um, like you said, I don't want to normalize aggressive, uh, violent behavior because I want them to think that that is how I'm supposed to respond to you when I'm upset with you, or I'm disappointed in you or frustrated with something you may have done. So I look for other ways to express my issue with them, to teach them a lesson so we can move through it and not be stuck on it and dwell on it. Mm -hmm. uh, plus, I don't want to hurt them. Um, that's never my intent when I'm dealing with uh, 
a child. I don't want them to be hurt. I want them to be molded, protected, and made into the person they're supposed to become. So, um, but the current relationship, you know, it would be, um, uh, we have Boo Boo, um, Amora and, you know, been in her life since she was two, she's 11 now. No, it was, let's see. So maybe she was a little older than two. I'm sorry. She may have been a little older than two. So let's say four, something, four or five, something like that, whatever it is, she was still a baby and still being able to mold. And so if you talk too loud to her, she would cry. I mean, whatever, if you know, boo boo, you know, and so, so I, what I would do with her, I would say, hold on, daddy doesn't understand cry language. I can't understand you when we're talking and you're crying. So you have to stop crying first. And I said, well, why are you crying? Because you're mad at me. Well, baby, I'm not mad at you. I'm disappointed. And so I would clarify what is what, so she would have a clear understanding. Right. Now she knows how to kind of maneuver around daddy. You know, she knows how to work daddy <laughs> to get what she wants. But sometimes you still may cry a little bit and I'll tell her, stop crying. Talk to me. Let me understand what you're saying. Yeah. You know, and she'll explain to me and we'll get past. And I say, are you hurt? Are you hurt? And she'll say, no. I say, are you dying? No. <laughs> you know, I won't let me, let me check. Cause when people cry, it's usually <laughs> something going on, you know, it's right. middle, you know, so I want to check these areas first and it's kind of sarcasm, you know, but she'll laugh, <laughs> I'll laugh and we'll get past whatever the issue is. And then we'll move into why it's not correct to, I know one day she was on the hover round with scissors in her hand, trying to grab a bowl of noodles. So she got oh, scissors gosh. in one hand, noodles in the other, and she's on the hover round. And I'm like, mm -mm, no. She multitasking no. early. Early, you hear me? And so we had to get that corrected so she'd understand that, you know, she could be hurt. Um, one day I showed her how to wash clothes. She said, you could have showed me how to wash clothes earlier, sooner than this. And it was just kind of funny because she just learned how to wash clothes. Um, but, you know, each lesson that she gets, uh, I try to keep it within a boundary that I set myself because I don't want to overstep the boundary. Right. Um, I get the feeling sometimes because it is challenging as being a step parent that the kids feel like you ain't my daddy. You know, you get that feeling sometimes from their mm -hmm. energy when they're frustrated or angry and it hurts because you love them and you care about them as if you were uh, their biological father, but you know that you're not. No right. matter what you say, no matter what you do, you know you're not. So you have to deal with that pain, you know, of them rejecting you in that way. No one else can help you with that pain because that's just part of uh, being a step parent. You know, so it is a challenge and it is uh, frustrating, but I keep the boundaries set myself, you know, uh, that way there'll never be a situation where she would have to say, you can't do this or you can't say this. And by keeping it that way, it helps all of us grow. It keeps all of us in a specific place where you don't get outside of this. And, you know, the children see that dad loves us. The reason why he does these things is because he loves us. He doesn't do things to hurt us. He does things to love us. And by him doing these specific things, it not only helps mom get to a place where, you know, you're doing more things on the right side instead of the wrong side. It helps the kids see, okay, well, mom and dad are doing these things this way. So I need to do these things this way. Absolutely. You know, um, yeah. I totally agree with everything you just said right now. So I wanted to, um, switch gears just a little bit because you told me that you have a book that you're working on. It's called Black Boy You Can. What is the concept of the book? Um, it's basically a motivational book for young Black men, young Black boys, um, 
who have went through, you know, the many different challenges that we face as young black men. Um, oftentimes we experience things in life that just beats us up and we don't really know what to do and how to deal with those things. I met uh, a man named Sean Baldwin, who uh, actually was the second black guy on Wall Street. So I was talking to him one day and I told him, I said, uh, I just want to make money while I sleep. And he said, <laughs> don't we all? I know that's right. He said, uh, Reginald F. Lewis. And I said, huh? He said, Reginald F. Lewis. And I said, uh, who is that? He said, that's who coined the phrase, make money while you sleep. And I said, well, I don't know who coined the phrase. I just know I want to do it. <laughs> and so he smiled at me and he said, Aaron, uh, I want you to read something. I said, okay. And we kind of didn't even talk about it anymore. And maybe a couple of days later, he handed me a book uh, by Reginald F. Lewis called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? So I read the book and I was just so intrigued by the book. And so it made me pay more attention to Sean. So I watched him more and more and more. As I watched him, I saw his discipline, his determination, how he was actively involved in his family's life and how he loved his daughter. He has a daughter named Chase. And so where his house is located or his apartment, whatever, was right outside the window, it was Chase Bank. So every time his daughter looked out the window, she'd see her name in lights. <laughs> and he specifically did that so his daughter would see her name in lights. And I'm like, wow, you know, he said, because I knew she would grow up to be something great. And I wanted her to see that every right. single day when she looked out of her window. He's manifesting And that. he, exactly, he manifested it. And so we began to talk and he asked me about different experiences in life. And so he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I have an op for profit and I want to help young men and young women, you know, learn about STEM technology and, you know, learn about uh, renewable energy and things that will give us a competitive advantage to help us get through the times that we're in. And he said, um, he said, Dan, I think you should write a book. And I said, yeah, he said, you should write a book about your experiences. So I said, okay. So I sat and thought about it for a while and before I had ever accomplished anything in life, I always felt like I couldn't, you know, I can't, even though it shouldn't be in my vocabulary, I would always think I couldn't because I had never accomplished anything. Mm -hmm. And so, um, as I began to look at all of the things that I had been through in life, all the challenges that I was faced with, all the hurdles that I had overcome, it came to me, black boy, you can, if you can do it, Aaron, anyone can do it. This is what you need to be writing about. You know, you need to be using your inspiration and fueling others and their inspiration to help them get over the hurdles and look at the different people that you've met that have come into your life to show you black boy, you can, uh, Reginald Lewis, he was the first and only person to get, ever get into Harvard law without filling out the application. He didn't wow. even apply. Right. Reginald F. Lewis, um, Sean being the second black man on wall street, you know, and all the hurdles he had overcome. So. When I began to look back and see not only the hurdles I overcame and these other men that I had uh, heard of and had met and the other men in my life, seeing that they had overcome, I knew it was a must that I use my voice to inspire young black men to know that yes, you can, black boy, you can, despite any obstacles, despite anyone saying you can't, despite any hurdle, yes, you can, whatever you put your mind to you can achieve whatever you discipline yourself for, you can make happen uh, as it like manifesting. So um, that's where it came from. Wow, that is amazing. So how far have you gotten in the book? Um, I'm three quarters of the way. 
I'm three quarters of the way through with it. Uh, and I got some excerpts from Sean, some different thoughts, because every day Sean emails me, and he sends me something different that he's thinking in different quotes uh, from Socrates or, you know, it's always something. He writes poems. Uh, he's got a book of poems. So, uh, but I'm three quarters of the way and I'm looking at how I want to wrap it up. That's what I'm just, I'm at a place where now I want to start bringing it to a close. Uh, and I don't know exactly how I want to do that because I still want to continue with the same message, but I don't want to beat a dead horse. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if I want to include exercises, you know, things because change takes a lot. It's not an easy thing to do uh, when you have a lot of other things going on. You have to be willing to change multiple areas of your life to achieve a goal. Uh, and I think that's a challenge for most people. You know, some people say, I want to stop smoking cigarettes, uh, but they want to go to the bar and hang out where people smoke. Yeah. You know, and drinking and smoking go hand in hand. It's exactly. That was my point. So, you know, they want to stop, but you know, Hey, I'll stop buying cigarettes, but I still frequently go to places that do, or I want to lose weight, but I don't want to stop eating right before I go to bed. You know, just <laughs> it, it's multiple, it's multiple things. Why are you picking on me? No, I'm not picking on you. I'm talking about <laughs> me too. I am talking about me too. I picked up like 20 pounds. So. Oh, I'm sure. But yeah. I picked a little something up. God damn it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I'm glad that you are really um, writing that book because I think men need a lot of encouragement. I think black men need a different type of encouragement. I feel like black men always have to carry themselves differently with a different type of strength. It's not the same because the struggles are different. I think that book is going to be something amazing. Are you going to do book signing and all that? You're going to do the whole nine? Um, Lease party, all that stuff? I, I'm not sure. Um, I've discussed it a little bit with Sean. And we kind of have a vision of how we want to do it. I don't know if I'm going to do all of that. Um, I really wanted to make it an ebook. Um, I wanted to basically make it an ebook and get uh, tablets so we can provide tablets to uh, impoverished communities. So okay. get the book put onto a tablet and then be able to get the tablets to the kids. So they'll have, it'll be like a double bonus. You get a tablet right. and you get a book. Um, so we're kind of working on that, trying to get that in motion. And uh, I mean, hundred copies, I would love to, I would really, really love to, uh, but I'm really more focused on reaching the audience that I want to reach. Yeah. Um, and, and making it beneficial for them. That's really my goal right now. Uh, because if I can't do that, then it'd be all for not, you know, so. Yeah. And you seem like you really have a lot to offer young boys. You've been through life. You've had these experiences. You've had experiences with your father. You know, you've been a stepfather. You have a lot of life experience that people can relate to. So it would be good for you to really get that out. And of course, content is always always so much more important. So before we close, what advice would you give men regarding their roles as step parents to the children of the women that they are dating? Um, patience. As being the head of your household, it takes patience. And not only patience, but also a compromise. You have to be willing to see everything and everyone where they're at and learn to love them the way they need to be loved and not the way you want to love them. That would be my advice. That is great advice. That is great advice. And um, it's already awkward sometimes when you 
are in a step-parent relationship. I mean, I've been in it, you know, luckily for me, the kids were younger, but when you're dealing with kids that are maybe like uh, tweens and teenagers, that they already have their little opinions and they think everybody wants to hear them. (laughs) It's always so much harder to come in at that point, opposed to like when they're like kindergartners and you can as you said before, you can mold them still. They're still willing to love you. They still love being home and they hang on your every word, you know, whereas where they're at an age where they think they know everything already. So I really appreciate that advice. And I hope all the guys and gals listening, because this can go either way. I mean, I think all the information that you shared here is relevant and beneficial to everyone, to be honest. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me again. Oh, no problem. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I'd like to thank you for your time today. And I'd like to thank you for being vulnerable. You know, they say that black men can't do that. But uh, let me tell you, I've been finding them and I've been inviting them to speak on this podcast. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I thank you so much. And um, I really value you. And I really honor you as a black man. And I really honor what you've done. And as a woman that have had love, loss, love, loss, and love again. And have had to heal my wounds, lick my wounds myself and raise my children myself and shield my son from the streets and the gangs and different things. You know, I really appreciate what you've done for um, the young lady that you helped to raise. And that's very honorable of you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you again. And uh, we will talk another time. Peace and blessings. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining this episode of the Save Our Sisters Unplugged podcast. Hopefully you found it to be inspiring and you've received great information you can use in your daily life. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your sis some love by subscribing on Anchor, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to rate and review. We're on Instagram at SaveOurSisters underscore 2020 and check out our YouTube page. If you would like to continue the conversation, join our Save Our Sisters group on Facebook. Until next time, sis, and remember to love yourself.